If you want to revel in the wonder of the natural world while still asking tough questions about our place in that world, I'd like to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's called Outside In. Hosted by Sam Evans-Brown, Outside In tackles a broad range of subjects, from the environmental movement's troubling links to the eugenics movement, to the fraught history between hydropower development and indigenous rights in Canada. Outside In tries to capture the joy that attracts so many of us to the outdoors in the first place. The show has taken listeners under the ice of frozen lakes, to peat bogs in the Arctic, and up close to patches of moss in your own backyard. Outside In features deeply investigated stories and the deliberately goofy. It makes you think and makes you laugh. You can find Outside In in your favorite podcast app and at outsideinradio.org. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The story you're going to hear today is about alcohol addiction and rock climbing, and about the difficult road you face after getting sober. The road to redefining yourself once you've lost the thing you loved most. The story first aired in 2016, but since many of you are new to Out There, I wanted to share it with you again. And if you did hear it four years ago, it's worth another listen. I woke up in uh, a jail cell uh, again. You know, I'd, I'd been in a bunch of jails at this point, just like getting arrested for things, waking up, and you're like, where am I? And oh, here's where I am again. That's Brendan Leonard. He's a writer based in Montana, and he wrote a book called 60 Meters to Anywhere. And this experience he just described where he ended up in jail, happened because he'd gotten a DUI. It wasn't the first time he'd been arrested for drunk driving. It wasn't even the first time he'd been to jail for drunk driving. If you saw Brendan today, you'd never guess that alcohol had been a problem for him. He's trim and athletic, and he's got those healthy-looking creases on his forehead that come from years spent in the outdoors. He's also well-respected as a writer. But at the point when he ended up in jail, alcohol had almost ruined his life. Like many of us, he'd had his first drink in high school, stole a can of Miller Genuine Draft Light from his parents. He didn't like the taste, but tried to choke it down anyway. He was like any kid. He just wanted to fit in, didn't want to seem like a wuss around his friends. And so he drank. By the time he was 17, he would get drunk whenever he had a night off from his dishwashing job and could manage to get some beer. In college, he was on a first-name basis with many of the bartenders in town. Early on, he loved drinking. Going out to bars made him feel alive and excited. He met new people, bought drinks for strangers, did shots with the bartenders. It was a lot of fun. But now, 
About a year out of college, the shine had worn off. You know, I would go out after work or whatever, and then I would manage to spend, you know, over $100 in bars where, like, you know, drinks were like $1.75, which is kind of an achievement, you know. It was after that last trip to jail that Brendan finally took the steps to get sober. And as I mentioned, he wrote a book about it called 60 Meters to Anywhere. Now, before you think this is just some inspirational story about an alcoholic getting sober, let me stop you. The book is about a lot more than that. It's a story about redefining yourself, about creating a new life once you've lost the thing you loved most. For Brandon, that new life came about in the outdoors. But let's go back to the beginning. They say, in addition, they say you start out and it's fun and then you have fun with problems and then you just have problems. And you're in this sort of maintenance uh, situation where you're like, oh, I have to do this because it makes me feel okay. You know, it's not like it makes me feel good or I feel happy doing it. By the time he got arrested that final time, Brandon was a mess. He was living in Cedar Falls, Iowa, the same town he'd gone to college in, and he was working as a bartender at a sports bar. After his shift, he'd go out to other bars and would regularly have somewhere between 12 and 25 drinks a night. He rarely left bars until closing time, and when he finally did go home, he'd keep drinking, polishing off a bottle of red wine before passing out in his kitchen. Driving drunk was the norm. In fact, he usually kept drinking while he drove. And perhaps not surprisingly, he'd been in several accidents in the past two years. In the beginning, as we've said, drinking was fun. In fact, it was his favorite thing to do. But by this point, there was nothing magical about it anymore. He drank because he didn't know what else to do. And then he got that final DUI and ended up in jail and was forced to go to rehab. He spent five weeks in the rehab program, and it worked. He got sober. I think uh, Mike Tyson calls rehab the best forced decision I ever made, and uh, I think I think I would probably agree with that. So, yeah, that's what he says now, that rehab was a really good thing. But at the time, being sober wasn't so great. In fact, it was pretty miserable. Oh, it was, I'm incredibly lonely. You see, at this point, Brendan was still really young. He was only 23. And right after rehab, he started grad school. He'd been writing a column for his college newspaper and loved it. Loved the creativity of it. Loved the attention he'd get when strangers recognized him. And he had visions of becoming the next Hunter S. Thompson. So fresh out of rehab, he headed to Montana to start journalism school. You'd think that might have been a good thing, to have a rigorous academic program to focus on. But put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Social life for a grad student who can't drink? You know, college campuses are mostly young people, and, you know, the social the social thing to do in most college campuses is go to a bar and just have a beer, you know? And not everybody has this massive, you know, alcohol problem that I do. They just go and have a beer or two or three, and then they go home. Um, and I can't do any of that, you know? Like, even, like, my probation officer, like, if I get caught being in a bar for some reason, I'm screwed. I have to go to jail. Like, I have to go back to Iowa and go to jail. So I basically was just like, I just got to do what I what I can to stay sober, which was staying inside my apartment when, when everybody else was out partying. And it was very lonely, you know, and I was, I was young. I was like 23, 24. I'm like, 
feeling like, God, this is really going to be tough for the rest of my life, like feeling this old, but being this young. Um, and it was tough. It was probably the hardest year of my life at that point. So I often assumed that the hard part about getting sober is actually getting sober. Um, but from your book, it sounds like the hard part was not getting sober. It was what happened after. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it is. Getting sober is difficult for people. And for me, I think it was super difficult, you know, and um, on this emotional level where you just don't know how to interact with people. I mean, like, alcohol is kind of everywhere in our society. Like, there's a million reasons for you to say, oh, I need a drink, you know, like, I'm tired, I'm tired of work, or I'm happy, or I'm sad, or I'm like, you know, brokenhearted, or like, let's celebrate, or let's like drown our sorrows, blah, 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 you know, there's all these reasons. So like, it's difficult to just avoid that in our society. Um, but I think when I was deciding to write about it, after you're sober, and you can figure out this thing where you don't, I'm not going to drink today, and then tomorrow, I'm going to try to not drink too. And I'm going to keep doing this until until I'm better or it gets easier or whatever, whatever happens. Um, but like, then you're just like, I mean, this was something that took up like most of my free time. You know, it was like, it was this great thing. I was like, it was social, you know, I was, I was having so much fun. I was meeting all these people, you know, it was exciting. There was this kind of this weird sort of adventure and exploring like the landscape of bars, you know, wherever you were. And, um, and you know, that was gone. In other words, the thing that had defined Brendan's life was suddenly taken away from him. He'd done what he was supposed to do. He'd gotten sober. And not only that, he's managing to stay sober. But he's miserable. He's in this awful, lonely place, no social life. And he feels like he's lost his identity. All he is, is a guy who doesn't drink anymore. So what do you do in a situation like that? How do you start building an identity as something that you are, rather than something that you're not? Brendan felt like he didn't have any role models to imitate. All the stories he'd heard about life after treatment involved finding Jesus, or becoming addicted to AA meetings, or relapsing. And none of those appealed to him. So even after he finished grad school and was out of the difficult university setting, he still wasn't happy. In his book, he describes sobriety as being, quote, like an itchy sweater I had been forced to wear to some formal event. I was treading water in life rudderless, coasting. I didn't know what I was or what I was about. And then, one Christmas, everything changed. Brendan had gone home to Iowa for the holidays, and his brother handed him a present. Inside the box was a climbing rope. He had, like a lot of men, maybe everybody does this, I think men specifically do, where they like decide they're going to do something, they need to buy all the gear before they actually do it. And he had uh, he had bought a harness, shoes, a rope, a bunch of carabiners and stuff. And uh, it didn't, you know, it didn't end up working out that he was able to go climbing outside. So he took this rope and just threw it in a box. He just was like, well, I'm not using it. I figured maybe, you know, you're out west in Arizona, maybe you'll, maybe you'll find a, a way to use it. I was kind of like mild, you know, it was like one of those re-gift things where you're like, okay, thanks, dude. Like, are you just like cleaning out your garage and like, you know, maybe you have some old screwdrivers you'd like to throw in here or whatever. Like, kind of in my head, I was just like, what the hell am I going to do with this thing?
yeah, Brendan was not particularly stoked about this gift. But he was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time and was working at REI, which is a big outdoor gear store. And so when he goes back to work after Christmas with this rope, several of his co-workers invite him to go climbing with them. So I got a harness and some shoes and they took me out. And no, it was not love at first climb. Quite the opposite, actually. I did nothing right, despite their instructions and best efforts. And uh, I was just terrified of it. I'm like, this is just not a fun experience for me. Not a fun experience. But now Brendan had not only this rope, but other climbing gear as well. Gear he'd paid money for. And in case you're not familiar with climbing equipment, it can get pretty pricey. And so, a little later, after Brendan moved to Colorado, he decided to give climbing another try. This time, he hired a guide and took an actual lesson. And then it was just like, that was it for me. You know, I like started buying guidebooks and like, you know, going everywhere I could where there were easy sport climbs and like, you know, doing all the bolted routes I could and getting stronger and like getting really obsessed with it, you know. Brendan hadn't been particularly outdoorsy growing up. His family occasionally went skiing and he dabbled in high school sports, but he had never really been drawn to extreme activities. And yet now, here he was in the mountains of Colorado, scaling cliffs. And he was in love with the sport, deeply and totally in love. You're in this moment where you cannot think about anything else. You have this extreme focus. Uh, you know, you're in a situation where you can't just be like, Oh, did I remember to put the laundry in the dryer? But you know, like if you if your mind goes for a second, you're in a situation where you probably fall and break both ankles, or so it's this weird sort of like almost relaxation, I guess, or like therapy for me. Um, and I had not felt that since I had like I hadn't had this mental relaxation where I my brain stopped and only focused on one thing since I was like drinking, you know, where I was like, oh, okay, I'm checking out for the day. Okay, we'll hear the rest of Brendan's story in a moment. But first, one of the things that I really hate doing these days is grocery shopping. It's exhausting. Whenever I go to the store, I find myself worrying about COVID, wondering whether people will actually be masked up, planning out what I'll do if they're not. It takes up an inordinate amount of energy. You can't change what other people do, but you can make things easier on yourself. Instead of braving the store, why not try shopping at Thrive Market? Thrive Market is an online, membership-based market, and they're on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. They carry thousands of wholesome food, home, and beauty products, from organic and non-GMO food to ethical meat and sustainable seafood. Prices are 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices, and everything is sent to you with fast, carbon-neutral shipping. Thrive is one of Out There's sponsors, so they have a special offer for you. 
You can get 25% off your first order, plus a free 30-day membership when you go to thrivemarket.com slash out there. There's no promo code necessary. Your discount will be applied automatically at checkout. Just go to thrivemarket.com slash out there. Give yourself a break and do your shopping at Thrive. thrivemarket.com slash out there. Support for Out There also comes from BetterHelp. This year has been stressful in so many ways. If you're finding yourself grappling with a lot of big feelings and everything seems too much, maybe it's time to get some help. BetterHelp provides professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in all sorts of areas, from depression and anxiety to self-esteem to anger management. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions to match you with a therapist who can meet your specific needs. You can meet with your therapist via video chat, phone, or even text. Don't let things spiral out of control. Take charge of your mental health and do something that's good for you. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. And now, back to our story. I asked Brendan if there was a particular moment when he realized he loved climbing. And he said no, it was more of a gradual progression. He just loved how climbing made him feel. Finally, he had found something to be passionate about. Something that was relaxing and exciting at the same time. Something that made him feel alive again. And so he started climbing all the time. When he wasn't climbing, he was writing about climbing. And so this thing that had started as a hobby because of this random gift from his brother became a way of life, a new identity. One day he realized that he was no longer defined by something he didn't do. He wasn't just a guy who didn't drink. Now, he was doing something he loved. It was like, holy shit, I'm a mountaineer, like I'm a climber. This is like this this amazing, you know, identity that just developed because I went and tried to find something to replace alcohol. So climbing kind of became your identity, but do you think it was accidental that it was climbing? I mean, could it have been something else? Or is there something about climbing that was special that was able to to, to you know, sort of fill the void in your life? Yeah, I, um, I mean, it could have just as easily been, you know, painting if I was a good painter, but like I, I wasn't, you know, or or woodworking or like fixing cars or something like that. But this was easy. It just worked out, you know. Um, I'm glad it did because it gives you a lot of good vacation photos, really, you know. What what role does climbing play in your life now, today? Uh, I'm actually taking kind of a extended break more or less from it for a little over a year now like um i was i did a couple of big wall climbs in zion and i realized i was you know having 
just having like lots of dread about it. I wasn't doing it for just joy to like play. You know what I mean? I was taking it very seriously and like signed myself up for some trips for like magazine stories where it was like really pushing my limits as a climber. And I was just giving myself all this anxiety and, um, and I'm kind of, I was like, you know, I just want to like do something that's fun. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I have to do this. Like I can probably take a little break and be just fine. You know, like I want to do other adventures that I have that fun doing and I've, I've still been doing that. So, so I'm actually really surprised to hear that you're not climbing much right now. Like I wasn't expecting you to say that. Um, and, and it's interesting because in your book, it, it seems so much like climbing had become who you were and it had become the thing that sort of drove your life so is there something else that's now doing that or does one not need to have one thing that kind of defines you well I don't yeah I don't think it's some people it's permanent and they they become like they're climbers like for life right and i i want to be i want to be a writer more than i want to be a climber because if all you write about is climbing you only reach a certain segment of the world and you get into this situation where you realize you're like all we're talking about is rock climbing in this very uninteresting manner you know and it's like yeah it's this great hand crack and blah 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 you know and like I gotta I want to be interested in more things than that you know and um to remind myself like a book like that is it's a story of a certain time in your life you know I don't walk around and introduce myself to people and say I'm a recovering alcoholic I just don't say it anymore because like I'm kind of it's a part of what I do but it's not definitely not the forefront of what I'm thinking and similarly Brendan also doesn't walk around introducing himself as a climber On the About page of his website, he mentions climbing, but only as part of a long list of other things he loves doing. And when he showed up for his interview with me before we got down to business, we talked about the joys and pitfalls of writing, not rock climbing. It's almost like after he kicked his alcohol addiction, Brendan needed a new obsession, and climbing provided that. After he moved on from climbing, his life became more balanced. So what are you hoping that readers will take away from your book? Uh, one friend, he said it was it helped him think more honestly about his life. And I think that's the best thing anybody said to me about it. Um, because I think a lot of it is this reflection on what kind of person you want to be and um, how that affects the people around you. And I think that's what I want people to get out of it, really, is... You know, you're not stuck in a situation with a certain identity and like you can you can write your own story if you just see it the right way. And, and I think that's the best result that anybody could get out of it. Well, this idea of being stuck in your life is interesting because um, there's a point in the book where you quote Thoreau um, saying most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And and that seemed to have really resonated with you and and I I mean I've definitely had a point in my life where I've, where I that quote came to mind too and what did that mean for you at the time I think like everybody can relate to that because everybody's been in you know that job where they wondered you know is this really it in life you know or or looked out the window and thought gosh I I would maybe love to be doing something outdoors instead of this office job or like because I think what it says to me is that everybody 
has this thing that they maybe want to change about the way they're living their life. And at some point you realize that, you know, maybe our own biggest enemy, um, when it comes to living whatever life we want to, um, Jim Carrey calls it fear disguised as practicality where we make up all these excuses and say, well, I could never do that. I got a mortgage or I could never do that. I have to do this. I'm, I'm responsible. Right. And then we don't do the thing that we're scared of that we want to do, but we're kind of scared of it. What if I quit my job right now and go to grad school? Or what if I just say yes and marry this person or buy a house with them or have a kid or sell our house or move into a van, you know? And, uh, I think if we, if we're really brutally honest with ourselves, we decide that we are in charge of most of our story in a certain way. And, uh, you know, I think that's incredibly empowering for people uh, to realize that. That was Brendan Leonard. He lives in Missoula, Montana, and runs the website semirad.com. Semirad offers enthusiasm for regular folks, adventures for the every man and every woman. It is, as Brendan puts it, a website for those of us crushing it, kind of. Head to semi-rad.com to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you'd really enjoy an episode we ran last year called The Privilege to Choose. That episode involves hiking, not rock climbing, and it takes place in Europe instead of the American West. But like the story you just heard, it's about navigating a new reality after a disorienting life change. It takes us on a pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago. And it explores why having fewer options can actually be a good thing. Again, that episode is called The Privilege to Choose. Check it out. I think you'll really like it. Before you go, we are putting together a special New Year's episode, and I'd like to invite you to be featured on it. As we head into 2021, we're taking a moment to look ahead and envision a more perfect world, a more perfect outdoors. We want to hear from you. What do you think that should look like? Send us a voice memo describing your outdoor utopia. How do you feel in it? How is it different from now? Email me your voice memo. You can find my email address on our website, outtherepodcast.com. Or if you'd like to make it even easier, we also have a link in the show notes to a place where you can record your thoughts directly. If you send us your input by December 16th, we might air part or all of it on the show. That's it for this episode. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Out There Podcast. And if you're new to the show, check out our Best of Out There playlist. 
It's a curated list of some of our favorite episodes of all time, and you can find it at our website, outtherepodcast.com. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Our interns are Kara Schaefer and Margaret Warner and Stephanie Maltrich. Our ambassadors are Ashley White, Tiffany Duong, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you next week. <laughs>